And I'm Alexander Wales. This is episode 19, Exposition. So, this is probably going to be one of those episodes where we split it basically in half, right? Between the good and the bad, what, what defines good and bad exposition. But let's be clear here, first of all, about what it is that defines exposition opposed to, I guess, narrative. Like, the, what when people talk about narrative, when we talk about exposition... Is there a difference in your mind? Like, do you see them as basically the same thing? I think that it's very hard to have narrative that has no exposition in it, right? Like, mm-hmm. you say she ran her fingers through her brown hair. You are expositing something. You're, you're revealing some things aside from just the action to the reader, right? It's like you're, you're saying, okay, she had hair and it's brown, and you're helping to, to set that scene, and it's... It is a part of telling the reader something that is necessary or is just, you know, adds to a character or a setting or a plot, right? If you are describing New York City, that's usually narrative, but it's also it's also part of exposition. I guess to me, the the big difference comes with, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to say it's how disconnected that your exposition is from... What's your, going on in the story? Yeah, but mm-hmm. that's... That's more a sign of bad exposition, I think, right, right. than good exposition. So I think it's it's more when you're revealing things that the reader needs to know to make sense of your setting or your character or your plot, right? Because you you are yeah. you are exposing things when you like describe a character, but you don't necessarily need to know like the shape of a, a character's face to know anything about them. Although sometimes you do, like sometimes that's. Sometimes that's that's a way of revealing something about the character, and and usually if you're writing really well, I think that it is, like that every little detail that you give reveals something about your character or your plot or your setting or, or whatever. Right. I think of first person. What's narration and what's exposition? When the character themselves is telling you the story and describing events as they're happening is part of the narration, but when it tips into exposition is more when it's like like the kind of stuff you could find in a textbook. Whether it's like, you know, like, I grew up in Chicago, lived here all my life, like, starts describing parts of Chicago and, and like, the feel of the city and stuff like that. Like, that's usually narration, but if it goes into, like, a a brief history lesson about the city and, like, you know, what uh, shaped it and stuff, it edges into exposition more. And that distinction between, like, teaching you something that has nothing to do with the story but can be related to the story, obviously. Like, the story can still use it. If it's good exposition, it, it should it should blend in into the story. But it's still teaching you something that has nothing to do with the story versus narration, which is generally about the story or its characters in some regard. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good way to split it. Because it's like, there are things... Because we're all in first person all the time, right? Mm-hmm. In our daily lives, that's sort of how we live it. And you sort of don't think about so many things right like right like i'm i'm on a laptop right now that my wife won for me at this computing contest and that thought never crosses through my head yeah i'm sitting at this table that has score marks in it at like one inch widths so you can play D &D on it it's got an acrylic (laughs) thing so you can like write in dry dry erase and erase Mm -hmm. it and stuff i don't think about that either but exposition would give you those details where whereas opposed as if i were just doing narrative i would just it's just the things that i'm saying basically at best you'd basically just say like sitting at the desk because it's it's relevant to what's going on yeah um exposition is all the things that in 
your mind you just sort of elide over. Yeah. Although not entirely. I mean, we'll talk about that a little later on because there are ways to do exposition where it's where it comes in naturally. So let's get to bad exposition because I think exposition is one of the things that is not necessarily difficult to do, but it's something that people do wrong a lot and they do it wrong in, I think, prose fiction far more than in television or movies. Yeah, it's it's one of the, I want to say it's one of the intrinsic pitfalls in novels rather than other forms of media, but it's not necessarily true because obviously there can be we'll talk about it, but like there can be, you know, characters in movies that are just there to be talking exposition heads that just, you know, tell the viewers things the character should already know and things like that, but because this, it still requires people talking, it's easier to kind of miss when it's bad or have people not really recognize why it, why it bothers them whereas if they were reading a book their eye would just start skimming like they'd be like yeah. nodding off things like that like it's much it's much less hidden when exposition is bad one of the things that's really great about movies and television is that you can you can get so much exposition out of the way with like a 2 second establishing shot mm-hmm. if you're doing like a sci-fi movie you can paint a a scene in several frames where there are like flying cars or you know there's a smog covered city and you have so much more room for economy right and if you are writing blade runner rather than directing blade runner you have to spend so much more time and i think care on exposition to get that same sense of place and that sense of scene um, which is one of the, the main functions, I think, of, of exposition. Right, and since that's so necessary to novels, because you can't do that shortcut in movies, bad exposition that is necessary, like, necessary exposition can still be bad because it falls into, like, a number of traps that I would say are, I want to say not entertaining, but that's, like, too broad. Obviously, if something's not an entertaining part of the story, then it's not as good as it can be. Yeah, I think interrupting flow is a big one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mo- mostly just being boring. I, exposition has a real, real risk of being boring. Yeah. So for like bad exposition, usually if you if you can tell that it's exposition, that's usually a sign that it's not working correctly. I think you can get away with it to some extent in the very beginning of a book or possibly a chapter as just part of... People will accept a, a small right. amount of scene setting. Right. But like The Way of Kings... By Brandon Sanderson is this big like ten book series of which two are out right now. But the very first book has like a prologue, and there are like three paragraphs or four paragraphs in a row where this magic system is being described. And I just I was I almost I, I really like the books except for that very first part because I was just like oh my god I I do not need to hear about the three different kinds of binding at this point, right? right? I I don't need... I mean, not only do I not need the exposition here, but it's very clearly I'm having this magic system being explained to me. And I don't go... You know, I was talking about this with someone on uh, the Discord servers. I don't go to prose fiction because I want to have a magic system explained to me. If, If that was what I wanted, I could just go to, you know a bunch of places on the internet, and I could talk to people about the mechanics of imaginary magic systems. But when I come to prose, I come to it for very different reasons from that. 
I don't want to have this exposition thrust toward me. And like, obviously there's, there are different methods of execution, but if, if you can tell that it's exposition, then it's probably bad exposition. Yeah. Although, I mean, once you get really good at telling what is and isn't exposition, sometimes they're just like, oh my God, that was so smooth how they did that there. Die Hard does that. In Die Hard, they need to establish that uh, John McCain is like sort of has this rocky relationship with his wife. Mm -hmm. And they have this scene on the plane. He's like, oh, I don't like flying. And there's sort of this conversation that dances around the topic. And it's very clear that they're setting up, like they're establishing this relationship. And, you know, to to me, that is very clear exposition. But it just sort of glides past you in a really great way. Yeah. And I think that points to one of the best ways to hide exposition in plain sight, which is dialogue. When you've got a character telling another character something, it's still in the scene. It doesn't take people out of it. Whereas in a book, if you've got exposition being described in text outside of dialogue, it's very it's very distinct from the scene. Yeah. And it doesn't always work well. Like, you can still have, you know paragraphs and paragraphs of, of written dialogue that don't that don't keep people engaged and make it very clear after the first two paragraphs that like this information could probably be, have been conveyed somewhere better but that's not always an easy thing to do well you can you can do my least favorite you can do my least favorite thing which is as you know yeah. right one character describing to another character something which both of them are completely aware of is just it's just the worst. Biggest red flag in any any movie with supposed experts. Any yeah. any time there's some super spy or scientists or engineers or military people or anything like that, and someone is explaining something that these people should know forward and back, like you know, basic training shit. Sometimes it just completely takes me out of the story. And sometimes it's even like when they're describing something in like a plan that they're about to do and it's like why are you saying this now this should have been this should have been something that you that you hammered out like before you even left the the base you know like this should not be like a a, a hurried two-minute conversation on your way to the to the place and sometimes it's an as you know what so remember guys or something that you know one last reminder kind of thing which which helps a bit it hides it a bit yeah well one one of the reasons that they want to do it like that is because of one of the pitfalls of bad exposition, which is that it can be very boring, Yeah. right? So you sort of, it's very common in movies and television to set the exposition when something else visual is happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like they're doing a quick overview that's, first of all, shortening the exposition down to like just the things that the the viewer absolutely needs to know. And then you do it like, oh, they're like loading their guns as they're talking to each other. And they're right. they're doing all this other stuff or they're like having this plane ride and it's like noisy and stuff. And it's a way to make exposition less boring by sort of having it happen during something that's exciting. Yeah. And it cuts down on exposition. I think it's usually that's a cheap tactic. But it's serviceable. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, sometimes people just use that because they've seen it used a lot, and right. it doesn't accomplish what they want it to. But one of my favorite uses of of this, just generally, I thought a really good movie was uh, Ocean's Eleven, where they'll be describing things that 
have to do with the heist that they're going to pull off or about the place that they're going to be ripping off. And as they're describing it, they're able to, like, as you hear them talking about it in the planning room, they keep shifting back and forth between everyone gathered around, like, the blueprints or whatever, and the visuals of the inside of the casino and stuff, like, with, you know, guards switching positions, um, someone, like, getting caught in the tables, like, cheating and getting dragged out, stuff like that. Yeah. And it's a really good trick of, of the visual medium to allow you to absorb v- verbal information while being entertained by visual information at the same time. In writing, I would say the best way to do that kind of trick a bit is make the action that you're describing as info-rich, like, info-dense as you can with just the action itself. So, for example, if you are describing... The reason why a certain method of getting into a a building is is hard, right? Like you could say, oh, they've got a force field up around the building and anything that tries to fly in through a window or something like that will uh, get shocked or get like fried out of the air or something like that. You can have someone say that and then have the other people go like, oh, okay, gotcha, yeah. Or you can have someone just ask like, what if we go through a window and the person... You know, this might not be the best example because this would be a potentially terrible thing to do, but just picks up a rock and throws it at one of the windows and you and you describe it being destroyed or evaporated or something. Maybe they've got like a little test version of it. So you use action to answer questions that the audience may have about the world or about something that's going to take place or whatever it is. Yeah. Planning sessions are, I think, good because they can offer a little bit of action. Back to the Future part i think it was first i think they did it in both part one and part three but they have this little model set up and they have the like little model car right what has to happen for the for, to get the speed yeah and then it like starts on fire and stuff and it's like a little joke to go in with your exposition exposition so talking about bad exposition still telling readers things that they do not need to know i i see this with sort of amateur or let's say journeyman uh, fantasy writers and science fiction writers, they have like this great magic system they thought up and they just want to tell you everything about it. And a lot of it's like not relevant to the plot at all. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you, you got really deep into world building and you have this like fantasy race that has this awesome history and stuff, but it's not, you know, it has nothing to do with your story right. or even with your characters. Don't Just don't put that stuff in. It can be fun for you to write, mm-hmm. but it's usually not very fun to read. And it's good to have these thoughts on paper and have them thought out too because you never know when like some information of that might become relevant in, when you're writing later or something that might you know, affect the way you perceive the world and, and have characters act more authentically in that world. Like, it's it's all still useful information to have, and if you write it, it's not like wasting time. Just recognize when it's relevant for the story and when it's not. And I'm going to say that this is one of those things that also your mileage may vary a lot for, for whether readers will enjoy it or not, because obviously some readers are more into world building and, and learning like obscure bits of information about a world, and some stories are more explicitly about exploring a world. I would say that um, readers of rational fiction tend to be a little less sensitive to being told things. Yeah, I was going to say that, that one of the few ways it's very justified, especially in rational fiction, is if the thing that you're, you're conveying to the reader that has nothing to do with the plot answers a question that a intelligent person should be wondering, right? So, like, if you 
introduce some magic in uh, in a story and someone's like couldn't you just do this or why doesn't anyone just do this like a quick story or explanation of like some thing that happened in the past or or whatever it is that isn't necessarily relevant to the story but explains why a character doesn't take advantage of it a certain way or how it you know how a certain thing got resolved in the past is useful and important in that respect because you don't want readers to be distracted by thoughts of like you know why is this the way it is if you can explain to them hopefully in an entertaining fashion right you don't want to stop the story cold and give a little history lesson or anything but it can be important yeah there's actually a there's neil stephenson book called cryptonomicon where he spends like two full pages talking about the best way to eat captain crunch and it has like nothing to do with the story I don't know why it works, but it does because it's because enter- it's entertaining maybe, but it's very it's very like in depth. It's as in depth as you would ever need to go on eating Captain Crunch. It does nothing for the plot or or the setting really, but yeah, there's a form of exposition that essentially works as a character building moment for the story itself. Like, not for a specific character, not for the setting even, but just as a, like, this is the kind of story this is. Yeah. Or this is the kind of writer this is. Authors like uh, Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams and Chuck Palahniuk, they have a very distinctive narrative voice. Their stories tend to be very unique in a lot of the themes that they discuss and a lot of the absurdist humor that they inject in their stories. And exposition that covers something that's not really plot relevant, but is just really well communicated and entertaining can be okay. But just keep in mind that a certain story type is more inviting to that kind of thing, whereas just plonking it in the middle of a action-adventure sci-fi story might be a little weird. Right. So as far as when to do exposition, you can do it too early and you can do it too late. Too early is like you tell me the long history of the elves when the elves aren't going to feature until like book three. Mm-hmm. I, then I don't, I don't need like a page about the history of the elves in book one. And then doing it too late is if there is some detail about your world that is relevant for like an upcoming problem or something, I don't want to hear about it the page right before because then it seems like you're just inventing it on the spot to immediately solve this problem. Right. And I actually, as we record this, it's still National Novel Writing Month. And that was a problem that I'd had with my current project is I did not firm up the magic system for dark magic. I waited until I was like 30, 40,000 words in. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, all of a sudden, oh, I gotta like, I gotta like tell the reader all the stuff that I finally decided on <laughs> so that I can have the scene yeah. where those rules come into play, which, which will, is something that will have to be fixed in editing. Yeah, this is where exposition feeds into Deuce Ex Machina too much if it's done too late, where there's a great scene in Game of Champions where the author basically cleverly uses the glitch from the original Pokemon games. There's a, there was a glitch where Toxic and Leech Seed, two different moves, were used in combination, and it just utterly absurd how powerful it was. It would basically just drain more and more health and damage them more and more every turn, and you would gain more and more health every turn. And it was kind of like the ultimate way to stop any kind of defensive wall Pokemon. And in Game of Champions, the author introduced a idea that like plant Pokemon could weaponize different forms of vegetation if they consumed them, or if they were exposed to different toxins, they were, and they were poisonous plant Pokemon, they could like use those toxins. And so this is a way that a character uh, uses 
like a, a very unique and rare toxin to kill a Pokemon that was essentially unstoppable because it just kept healing itself rapidly. And the problem is that it was only described as it was happening. So that it came off as not cleverness, but like, okay, well, I guess yeah. all the tension of like them seeming like they didn't have a plan or them basically, you know, being surprised and, and dismayed by how quickly the enemy Pokemon was preparing itself, like it kind of broke that suspense there retroactively, which is a hard balance to strike, obviously, because if you give the, the game away too quickly, then there's no suspense in the actual battle. But I would say the way to solve that is to make it so that getting the plan off itself is the challenge opposed to basically having it accomplished right away and then just kind of waiting to see when it'll when it'll take effect because then you have a whole period of time where the character knows something that the readers don't and the reveal has to be handled very well otherwise it's going to come off as too exposition-y uh, at the wrong time yeah and this is just a, a principle of good writing if you have a you want to set up a Chekhov's gun far in advance mm-hmm. ideally far enough in advance that the reader has almost but not quite forgotten about it, mm-hmm. or it's just become a background detail. But if you just have someone pull a gun out of somewhere, or the gun like enters into the room right before it's fired, it just it doesn't work. And I'm going to say, like, nailing good exposition is definitely not something that I personally feel like I've, I've accomplished. Like, not my latest chapter, but the one before, uh, the one at Bill's house, got a lot of criticism, justly, for being too exposition-y. A lot of the readers who were not familiar with the concepts being described in that chapter seemed to like it. Like, a lot of the feedback I got from them was, you know, this was great and entertaining and stuff, but the people who were aware of all these things, it came off very envilicious and, and exposition-y, which it was. And that's one of the times when I felt like, okay, yeah, this is definitely something that I, I needed to have spent more time in, finding better ways to convey this information. Because even just having a conversation between two characters isn't enough sometimes to have uh, an info dump essentially occur. Especially if that info dump, like we said, is not relevant to something immediately going on in the story right now. Like, it might be later on in the story, but the perception of exposition as info dump becomes higher the more removed it is from the immediate events going on around it. Yeah. Or the immediate story, the immediate point in the story going on around it, too. Yeah, and that's why, like, if you're setting up a Chekhov's gun, you don't... I mean, you can do it in a stage play, obviously, because you just have the gun sitting on a mantle. But in prose, you want to set up your Chekhov's gun so that it serves a purpose early, and then at, like, a midpoint, and then late. Right. So it serves multiple purposes. So it's part of the plot or the setting or the character. If you're going to stab a troll to death with a wooden knife, then you start off the story talking about how, how like sentimental the value of this knife is or yeah. it gets stolen by pickpocket or something. Something I've been thinking of doing, actually, because the next chapter has a... The first section of the next chapter has uh, Red and Leaf driving away from Bill's house and kind of reflecting on what they what they learned there. And that was kind of the... That was the immediate immediate effect of what they learned there that I wanted. Like, that was why that it was important to me to have that happen then, because it kind of kickstarts both of their determination for their for their character growth. Like, their, the thing that Blues had, the whole story that they kind of haven't, was that, that feeling of urgency to really start making sacrifices and making hard decisions to do to accomplish their goals, opposed to kind of playing it safe and, and taking their time. And so that's what I wanted out of, out of what they learned there. But it happens in the next chapter, at the beginning of the next chapter. And I've been thinking about moving it to the end of the previous chapter so that it's more obvious to the readers who are reading the chapter that, like, oh, this is 
this is why this is important, instead of going through the chapter and being like, well, that seemed kind of out of place, and then going to the next chapter and be like, oh, okay, got it. Obviously less of a concern once both chapters are out at the same time and someone's just binge reading, but, you know, still still definitely a concern. Yeah. So I think we've covered that exposition. Good exposition. What are what are the ways that you make it good? I mean, we talked a little bit about this. Because right. mostly, mostly to do good exposition, you just don't do bad exposition. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, th- that's an interesting point. Also, though, like good exposition and bad exposition, there is, as we've been kind of describing, sometimes middling exposition that gets the point across without being too intrusive. Is there such thing as actual good exposition, or is exposition that just doesn't strike you as exposition and gets the information across essentially just the best it can do? Right? Like, has there ever been a- mentioned at some point like you're like, oh man, that just was so well done and elegantly done? Uh, I think I feel like I've I've had a few moments like that too. I can't really remember exactly what they were when I've, I've been reading something. It was just like, that was a great way to concisely get across exposition. But they tend to do that through non-exposition at all. Like, they do it through action, they do it through like a clever bit of dialogue or something like that. Yeah. Outside of the visual medium, can you think of, of exposition that was done well? So, it was another Neil Stephenson, I think it was the Diamond Age, had this, or maybe maybe both Diamond Age and Snow Crash. One of the things that you can do in like science fiction and to a lesser extent fantasy is you can use made up words mm-hmm. to do exposition. Like Snow Crash has a burb clave, which is pretty immediately apparent just from the word that it's a suburb slash enclave. Right. And that just sets I mean, I think Accelerando does this too. It just drops terminology in there. Yeah. And that terminology is not connected to exposition, but just by seeing it, you sort of understand it in context, and you build up the context. That's a good example. Yeah, That's an important thing in general, too, when you're talking about good exposition, the idea of dropping enough information for for the readers to extrapolate the rest for themselves. And this requires, I would say, two things. One is kind of trusting your readers to be intelligent. A lot of the times, exposition comes from a place of I want to make sure the readers understand this exactly as I want them to understand it, opposed to trusting them to kind of pick it up along the way. And it also requires there be a relatable starting point to come from. So this is why it's easier to do this in a lot of speculative fiction that that isn't too removed from our world. Yeah. Whereas in fantasy worlds or you know heavy sci-fi worlds, there's a whole bunch of concepts that have no real parallel to our world, and so more, you, you'll tend to see a lot more exposition in those in those settings. Yeah, I think Sam Hughes, who writes, he has the QNTM.org, has uh, raw, fine structure, a bunch of other stories. Mm-hmm. Reading his stories was very much an education in how little exposition you can get away with, because he doesn't do practically anything. Someone sitting in a like grade dd mana circle and you don't get explained what that is right. you kind of you can kind of draw your own conclusions of like okay like grade d isn't particularly high but it's dd so maybe it's it's actually is higher than a in this case yeah. like yeah and you get you get like this this was as part of raw i think is that your first exposure to a spell is that she's casting the spell as using grays of using micro grays of radiation Mm -hmm. and that's like as part of the spell and that immediately gives you like the flavor of how spell casting works and the sort of specificity and it's very it is very much about trusting your readers to be smart but i think that you can get away with a lot of just 
people will assume things from context right. if you set up the context correctly. You you just don't need a lot of exposition. I tr I try to limit exposition as much as possible, which I don't know. You, you need it eventually. You can't I think coast on inference forever, especially because people will just especially if you're like writing a serial, mm -hmm. people people will create their own theories that aren't correct and that that can be kind of bad for a story if you're if people are operating under the wrong assumptions. Yeah, especially if it's something very important to the idea of being able to see where the plot's going, which is kind of a rational principle of like being able to intelligently infer things about the the future of the story without enough background info things can start to just feel too random that things are just happening for no reason and yeah. you don't you just don't understand enough about the politics of the world or the characters histories or whatever it is to understand why certain things are happening yeah i had um this sort of aborted novel that got, it got to like 40,000 words um i've mentioned this before is uh this like pseudo chinese culture mm -hmm. like fantasy culture and like souls are real and this like detective dies and he gets reincarnated like 200 years later. And the problem with that was it was a fish out of water story, except both the, you know, proverbial water and the proverbial land were unknown to the reader. And so there's so much, you can't really describe how someone is, is going through this culture shock. If you don't know the culture that they came from, if you're having to describe both the land and the water at the same time, I do think that Fish Out of Water is a really, really good way to get exposition because you have a character then who is interacting with people who he has questions, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're – whether you're doing portal fantasy where someone from our world goes to, like, a magical world and he gets a bunch of stuff to explain to him just as, the, as part of the course of his adventure or whatever, things that he would not just know. Um, or you can do reverse portal fantasy where people from a fantasy world come into our world. Um, both of those offer really good opportunities for exposition. I think that's one of the reasons that they're very popular. Yeah, the the easiest way to immerse the character in, in the world without making it feel exposition-y. Yeah, or without having it just be like an alien world that you have to sort of have this uncomfortable period of adjustment. There's a, a Strauss book, uh, the Nightmare Stacks, which deals with his version of elves. And they have this utterly alien culture that you're just sort of dropped into. And it's for effect. It's for it's for giving you, as the reader, that sort of alienness. But I, I think that that's usually not something that you want. Mm -hmm. You usually don't want to make an elvish culture feel alien or a fantasy world to just feel bizarre and uncomfortable. Right. When you say elvish, do you mean fey, essentially? Like the... Yes. I mean, I mean, Fey. They have this sort of. I mean, it sort of rides the line be between the two because they're not. I mean, they have magic, but it's they're they're Fey in the sense that they're from another plane. Yeah. And they have like glamour and stuff, but. I've been I've been a huge fan of the Fey for a really long time, and it's it's one of my favorite concepts of fantasy, uh, like the the old Fey, obviously not not necessarily the Tolkien elvish Fey. Yeah. But <clears throat> I'm actually writing a new novel. I don't think I'm going to put it online, but I might at some point. It's just something that's been really like thundering around in my head ever since I read Pack, which I haven't quite finished yet, but I'm about to finish. Um, I've only written one chapter so far. I kind of just banged it out like all in one, in one sitting, because it just was so present in my head that I had to get it on paper. And 
I feel like what I'm doing so far in the story is is actually walking a very thin line of trying to put as little exposition as possible while making what's happening engaging because it's set in the present world so you know like a lot of things that people would originally be aware of don't need exposition like i don't need to explain what high school is i don't need to explain you know what a what a, a student in high school's perception of of the world is like it's it's everyone's been through high school they know the setting immediately they know like the the interactions between the kids, you know, doesn't need too much explanation. The power imbalance between kids and teachers doesn't need much explanation. You can infer a lot more just through small interactions that way. But there's also a fey element in it, and it's kind of a dark story. It's it's young adult, but it's on the darker end of things. And I'm trying to see just how much how much I can include the fey elements in without explaining explicitly, like. This is what the Fae are, and this is why they're not allowed to lie, and this is why it's dangerous to make deals with them, and blah, 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 blah. Like, just kind of through the through the dialogue and what's going on, want it to be implicit. Yeah. That, you know, they have power, the power to hide themselves and things like that. So, I'll, I should probably read the Nightmare Stacks. It sounds like something I'd be interested in. Yeah, he, he calls it an entry point for the... For the series, because mm-hmm. it's like a it's like a seven book series, but Nightmare Stacks is sort of the like if you're writing a series, sometimes you write a book that's sort of meant as you can come in here rather than having to read all the previous books. Oh, oh, this is a Laundry Files novel. Cool. Okay, yes. I read yes. the I read the first one of those and I enjoyed it. I just never got around to reading the second one, I guess. But yeah, I'll definitely check this out. So, and I think that Strauss also in the Laundry Files uses one of the one of the conceits that I think is helpful or at least serviceable for exposition, which is that they are sort of written as memoirs or like service records. Right, right, right. And so, and additionally, you also get like info dumps that a character would actually get. Yeah. Right? That you get briefings, basically. And then those also serve double duty by like a character is reacting to discovering some like unimaginable super weapon or something like that. Which I think is one of the keys to, to good exposition is that you sort of you, you do double duty with it. Yep. It's not just yep. I am telling you this thing. It's I'm telling you something about this character, or I'm advancing the plot. It's one of the one of the tough things because sometimes you just want to be like, hey, here's how here's how dark magic works. Let me just tell you. But you need you need that scene to have a point beyond that because otherwise it just reads as you know even if it's coached in dialogue, it's still an info dump and people will get bored because people don't like exposition mm-hmm. or they don't tend to, I guess. Good exposition is like vegetables hidden in other foods. It's like you make mashed potatoes and then you like hide little bits of broccoli in it. So people don't realize that they're eating the veggies. Right. And that goes back to the... little kids. Right. <laughs> and that goes back to the idea of like, is there good exposition or is it just really well hidden exposition that people don't notice right like yeah. i think there is good exposition too but it's much rarer and i think it's very context specific i don't think i think it would be very difficult to write an entire book with nothing but sterling silver amazing exposition see i've, I've thought recently that i don't know why there aren't more like fantasy travelogues because travelogues are a thing people buy them and they read them right why, mm-hmm. why do we not have a version of that in like a made up world. Why is there not just a pure, I went on a trip and these are the things that I saw and here's their history. I would like to try to write something like that someday. I'd need the right world for it, but the game, a uh, child of light on steam, which I enjoyed very much 
for its music and its art. The gameplay was okay. The story was, was kind of subpar, but everything else, it had enough theme and atmosphere for it to really carry through. It was, it's a relatively short game, so it, it worked well. But there are pages that you collect while you're playing the game, and half of the pages are kind of just nonsense poetry, but the other half is a travelogue into the magical world that she's in by some characters that we never meet. It's just like, you know, a journal that, that someone who, who found themselves in that world. And I wish that there was more of them. Like, I wanted to read more of them. It lit the imagination, you know, in a way that I, I really enjoyed. And I agree with you. I think uh, travelogues and fantasy worlds would be much more well-received than they appear to currently exist. Yeah. yeah. And and one of the things there is that it's it's about execution. I mean, so many things in writing are, are about ex- execution. So right. many things in the creative arts generally are how well you do it. There's a magic building subreddit and they have people will just do these, you know, this is how my magic system works. And some of them are just horrendously like boring and giving me information. I don't need in like the wrong places and stuff. And others are just like, you know, it's, it's like you read slate star codex and there, there are ways that you can write that make information presentation a lot more palatable or not just palatable, but like entertaining. And that's sort of not something I can really give advice on. Right. Cause I mean, cause it ties into so many other art of storytelling type things. It's, it's like how you just write your sentences, you know, don't, don't do run on sentences, organize your ideas. Well, so many things like that. Yeah. Aspects of writing that are, I would say they come from being very well read come from lots of practice writing, come from a, just a general sense of personal character, kind of like back going back to the Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett and Chuck Palahniuk. They have very unique writing styles, and their sentences fit together and flow in a very particular way sometimes. And Like poetry. Right. Yeah. I've, I've often thought that Palahniuk had a very poetic style, especially in the way that he will repeat phrases. Yeah. Like... In Lullaby, there is a way that he describe he continually describes the colors of things in sort of it's sort of coached in this this language of high society, and then you keep coming across these same sentences and sort of like gets into your brain a little bit, mm-hmm. and it's boring stuff. I mean, it's not you know boring, but it's like it's just descriptions of the colors of things. And you get enough of that that it sort of, like, has a trance-like effect. I was like, there's a really great... It's like a little image with words in it that I've seen passed around the internet before. I can't recall enough of it to, like, find it. But it's like, um... It basically is telling you, like, you know, sentence structure is important. Word choice matters. Grammar matters. You can do so many things with these. Like, a, a run-on sentence can blah, 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 blah. And, like, as it's writing what it's saying, it's using its sentence structure and, and punctuation to communicate very viscerally what it's saying so like it gets near the end and starts like using set periods and pauses to space out its words as it describes like emphasis that you can put on specific words and then a quick you know smattering of words like a word by itself i'll find it and put it in the show notes yeah i think i think some someday we'll have to have a episode on like pure mechanics of writing but one of the problems is that so much of it is just intuitive because I very I, I think about that stuff when editing, but when writing, it's just flow state, and I'm not I'm not conscious of of how I'm trying to make exposition entertaining. I'm just doing what is sort of baked into my brain. 
Right, and I, I'm not sure how much of it is is intrinsic and how much like you can learn. I feel like a lot of it is intrinsic, but at the same time, I wonder if so. I, I, there's this divide right between literature and genre fiction. Yeah, and like you know how real the divide is is up to debate, but. There is definitely this perception of literary fiction having much more beautiful prose and good word choices, and it's more challenging to read, whereas genre fiction is just simple and straightforward, whatever. And I wonder how much of that comes from literature writers spending more time specifically studying their sentence structure and their word choice and trying to sculpt it into something more. And I don't know if that necessarily helps their writing at all. Personally, I don't care too much for that sort of thing myself. I'm more appreciative of the natural flow of sentences going well, opposed to the ones that stand out as poetic. But, you know, I appreciate them in, in small amounts, but not consistently as much as I do the, the natural flow of, of entertaining communication of ideas. So Yeah, we'll have to have an episode on that, too. Because, like, literary fiction I have read so much of. I was... English major and like a lot of that was part of the classes and a lot of that was also just I became an English major because I enjoyed literary fiction I don't read that much these days but it, th that distinction between the two is something I think about quite a lot because it's not just a subject matter divide because you have right, right. science fiction authors very commonly get adopted into literary fiction and you'll have college professors that will make up all these excuses for why stories about time travel and aliens and genetic engineering are not actually science fiction. Right. Orcs and Creek? Yep. Argon Atwood, Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. Ray Bradbury. They're, they're, I, I don't even consider Ray Bradbury literary fiction. Yeah, we'll definitely have an episode on, on literary fiction versus genre fiction. Yeah, but it, it's a very interesting, very cultural and social divide. Yeah. In addition to just like, like what you could pick up from machine learning. Yeah. For now, though, that's about it for exposition. Please join us next week where we'll be talking about religion and fiction. Thanks for listening, and stick around after the outro music for another book recommendation. Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial for anyone who listens to the show. Go to audibletrial.com rational if you want to take advantage. This week I'll be recommending Ghost Talkers by Mary Robinette Cowell, which is a alt-history World War I fantasy novel. One of the things that Mary Robinette Cowell does really well is exposition in this sort of teasing way and this sort of just giving you enough so that you can get to the plot. I've, I've read a number of her books that feature that, but Ghost Talkers is set in the real world and is historical fiction with magic added into it, which I think works really well as far as exposition goes, because you know the parts of the world and then you're adding in differences, which uh, saves a lot of time. So I recommend that. I think it's worth listening to. Go to audibletrial.com rational and you can get a book credit and listen to that today. Thanks.